Welcome to Bell Interrupted. Are you out of your damn mind? You get to drink from the fire hole! This is an embarrassment, a disgrace! What? What's the matter, kid? You got wax in your ears? Don't do it! You got Tammy and Parker! <laughs> Hello and welcome to Phil Interrupted. This is the show where I get to do whatever I want while dealing with the constant antics of Smash. We can review movies, video games, and who knows what else. Episodes can be spooky to oddly informative to downright stupid. I am your host, Phil Allen, and I do welcome you to the show. Today's podcast, we are going to dive deep into an unsolved mystery. Or is it solved? I'm not quite sure. That will be for you to debate and decide. And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with this. Today's episode is going to be about the Circleville letters, or sometimes called the Circleville writer. And you're going to find out why. Mysterious letters being written. Now, you also may remember that I did an episode a little while ago called, I believe it was 657 Boulevard. 657 Boulevard. And that was about another mysterious letter writer that terrorized one particular house in a New Jersey neighborhood. This writer terrorized an entire town of Circleville, Ohio. He just went apeshit on these people for whatever reason, trying to out everybody's secrets, accusing everybody. He was like, cancel culture before it was in. This guy was going after everybody, trying to shame everybody and bring everybody down and uh, spill the beans and everyone's secrets and stuff. So we'll get into it because there's so much information here. Uh, I'm excited to get down and dirty. So, guys, please join me. Let's get into the Circleville Letters. Now, there are four main characters, I guess you could say five perhaps, there is Mary and Ron Gillespie and Karen and Paul Freshour and I'm also forgetting there's a sheriff we'll get to him and a guy named Gordon Massey so these are the main names that you have to remember here Circleville, Ohio is a small town, best described as the sort of place where nobody locked their doors, you know Good old America, USA, baby, small town America. The town lies about 25 miles south of Columbus, Ohio, and has a population of about 13,000 residents. From the outside looking in, there would be little cause to doubt that it wasn't anything other than a cozy little town as it first appeared. But in the late 1970s, life was to be turned upside down for a considerable number of its residents, and instead of the safety of home, Circleville would represent the setting of a tangled web of hearsay and gossip, with residents suffering accusations of corruption and calculated murder attempts. One of the locals, Mary Gillespie, was a bus driver for the local town school. She became acutely aware of such a reality when, in December of 1976, she received an anonymous letter. It was written in a tall, sketched, block capital lettering style that read, as follows. And now, a dramatic reading from a guy I found on the internet that likes to do Circleville, Ohio letters. (laughs) 
Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. Wow, thanks dude, whoever you are. Now the ominous tone and threats in the letter were referring to an alleged affair between Mary Gillespie and Gordon Massey. Gordon Massey was the superintendent of a local school. Probably the, the same school that Mary drove the buses for, I'm, I'm going to guess. As promised, the letter writer had indeed been contacting others too. Many others. Throughout the next two weeks, residents across Circleville received letters that claimed to know intimate private details about the recipients' lives. The letters were postmarked from Columbus, were anonymous, and contained no return address. In many cases, they threatened harm, either physical or through the destruction of careers and personal lives. Some contained graphic drawings, and for many residents, the letters were hitting the mark in their accusations. Someone in town knew an awful lot about other people's business, and they weren't pleased at all. In total, thousands of people had been, or were, in the firing line to be contacted by the unknown writer. Life in Circleville had turned very sour indeed. After Mary received her letter, she and the superintendent, Gordon Massey, denied the accusations of the affair, and she attempted to keep both the letter and the subject matter hidden from her husband, Ron Gillespie. Less than a week later, she received one more similar communication, but made little effort to appease the writer by meeting his demands that she come clean about the affair. Two weeks after the first letter arrived, however, she received a third letter. This time, the stakes for admitting her alleged infidelity had risen. This letter was written in the same handwriting as the first and promised to expose her lies to the entire community. Looks like somebody's got it out for Mary Gillespie. Not quite content on simply threatening to smear Mary's name around town, the writer then also wrote to her husband Ron. Uh-oh. In the letter, it outed the extramarital relationship and told him to put an end to the affair or else his life would be in danger. The letter to Ron read as follows, and now another dramatic reading. You are also a pig. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBS, posters, signs and billboards until the truth comes out. You are also a pig. I love that part. <laughs> Actually, you know what? There's a little little blurb in there. You may have heard him say, I will tell CBS. And, and like when he's threatening all the different things that he's going to out them. Uh, you know what? People don't believe that he's actually talking about CBS, the network. Like, yeah, M NBC, ABC, and CBS. 
what people think he was actually talking about was a CB radio. And he wrote CB, but didn't put in like the apostrophe S for like CBs. Because those kind of radios were really popular back in the 70s. Remember like, you know, you could be in like a truck or a car. And if you had a CB radio, you could talk and talk to other different drivers and stuff. Kind of like a walkie-talkie system uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with it. Anyway, he probably wasn't talking about the CBS like major news uh, TV station network. Uh, probably just talking about regular old school CBs. This letter continued the escalation of veiled threats and the psychological fear. The writer had also switched to an even less traceable handwriting style, one of squared off capital letters that were thickly drawn and evenly spaced, like a series of blocks on a page. At a loss for what to do next, Mary and Ron enlisted the help of their close family. Ron's sister, Karen, her husband, Paul Freshour, and Paul's sister. After knocking heads together, the group came up with a suspect. A few of the letters were signed with the letter W, and they surmised from this that the writer was, in fact, William Massey, who is Gordon Massey's own son. Certainly, he had the motive to protect his mother and his family. And that gotta make sense. Teenager kid finds out that his dad's having an affair, wants to put a stop to it, sends some anonymous letters. Interesting, perhaps, way of dealing with the issue. Paul Freshour wrote a series of three or four letters to William, asking him to stop writing the threatening letters. And whether or not it was a coincidence, the letters stopped for a period, though several weeks later they started coming again, just as abruptly as they had seemed to have stopped. In August of 1977, now nine months on from the initial outbreak of mailings, Ron was at home looking after his children when he received a mysterious phone call. In recent weeks, Ron had been receiving continued letters, threatening his life and informing him that his pickup truck was being watched and his movements followed. This harassment now seemed to extend to a phone call. Ron slammed down the phone receiver, grabbed his gun, which was a small 25 caliber pistol, and stormed out of the house. It appeared that Ron had decided to confront the letter writer himself. Perhaps it was the phone call that took it a step too far, or perhaps he recognized the voice on the other end of the call. None of these details will ever be known, as unfortunately, Ron did not make it far. He lost control of his truck and slammed into a large tree, killing him in the process. What? The Pickup County Sheriff, Dwight Radcliffe, headed an investigation into Ron Gillespie's death. And while at first he suspected foul play, he later changed his mind and ruled it was an accident for reasons unknown to anybody but those on the investigation. This fact might not seem overly outlandish, because the coroner discovered during Ron's autopsy that his blood alcohol level was .16 almost two times the legal driving limit. His family were not impressed by this finding, and vehemently stated that when he had left the house on that fateful evening, that he was not drunk. Ron was, according to his family and close friends, only an occasional drinker who rarely, if ever, drank himself into a state anywhere near to a level of outright drunkenness. One other curious finding during the investigation was the state of Ron's gun. This is the one that he picked up in a hurry when he ran out. Forensics on the weapon found that it had been fired, discharging only a single bullet, 
No bullet holes were found inside of the vehicle. However, no bullet was ever recovered from the wreckage, which also rather curiously was sent to a crusher and disposed of only days after the accident. So that's interesting. He did fire the gun. Can't find the bullet. No idea who it was at, where the bullet went. That is very strange. And they very quickly disposed of the car, which, you know, there could have been further evidence in there. With the death of Ron Gillespie, one might think that the letters would have ceased or slowed down. However, this was not to be the case. Over the coming years, Mary continued to receive the mysterious mailings, almost all focused entirely on her alleged affair and several threatening not only her and Massey's job stability, but the life of Mary's own children. Referring to Mary's 12-year-old daughter, one spoke of how the writer would put a bullet in her head. Between 1977 and 1983, Mary received around 39 letters in total. After six years of this focused harassment and the death of her husband, Mary Gillespie and Gordon Massey finally came clean about an affair that had been happening between the two, though they stated adamantly that the relationship had begun in 1979, only after the letters had made their accusations and only after Ron's death and Massey's own divorce. Does anybody else smell BS with that? Bullshit. Bullshit. They're saying they did not have an affair before the letters, only after Mary's husband Ron died in the car crash and this um, Massey, Gordon Massey, the superintendent guy, uh, had his own divorce. I don't know. I guess stranger things have happened. They could be telling the truth, but it smells fishy, doesn't it? It smells fishy. This denial was apparently not enough to appease the writer, who carried on his tirade regardless, calling for the end of the relationship at once. In February of 1983, the letter writer's attacks on Mary Gillespie had intensified to a new level. They now begun to hang... Oh, this is great. They now began to place signs along the roadsides of Circleville. This is really kicking it up a notch. While on her bus route, and seeing a sign that accused her daughter of an illicit relationship with Gordon Massey, Mary Gillespie had had enough. She pulled her bus over to the sign, stormed out of the bus, and approached the sign to rip it down. As she was about to do so, however, she noticed something curious. There was a length of twine hung from a crudely made box that the poster was attached to. She removed the entire structure from the roadside and brought it back into the bus. As she pried open the lid, she split the glue that held it all together. She found inside two large blocks of styrofoam holding a pistol in place and the twine attached to the trigger. This crudely built trap was designed to fire at anyone who tore down the sign. And this bitch brings it onto a bus full of kids. How about them, Apples? At first, Mary could not believe what it was she was looking at. Curiously, however, rather than immediately reporting the incident to law enforcement, she took the device home. After several hours, she finally drove it to the station, and upon investigation, it was discovered that someone had tried to file the serial number of the gun away. This attempt failed, and the police found out that it belonged to... Dun-dun-dun! Paul Freshour. Her recently deceased husband, Ron's brother-in-law. 
on February 25th, 1983. Sheriff Radcliffe invited Paul Freshour to accompany him to the station to answer some questions concerning the Circleville letters. He was asked to copy the handwriting as best as he could and then had content from several letters dictated to him and was asked to write the content down. Following this peculiar form of handwriting analysis, Paul Freshour took the sheriff to his home to show him where he had normally kept his gun in the garage. Naturally, his gun was missing, as it was currently in the care of police. Freshour claimed that it had been stolen. However, Radcliffe decided otherwise and arrested him for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. Just stopping here for a nanosecond. And it does seem like a very shitty way to test somebody's handwriting. Like, you should probably get a handwriting expert. But also, it's like, here, look at this. Copy it as best as you can. I mean, I think anybody could kind of copy someone's handwriting. It might not be exact, but you would think if you're looking at the sample itself, you'd be able to... It's kind of like tracing almost. Like, you could kind of get it similar. It's not very good analysis, in my opinion. Now, if you had asked him to write a certain way and he did it and you're like holy shit there's a lot of tendencies that look the same here in the handwriting you may be onto something but I don't know it seemed like some shoddy police work uh, to me on October 24th 1983 Fresh Hour's trial began amongst much media attention Fresh Hour pleaded not guilty only 39 letters were used against him as evidence that had been addressed directly to Mary now remember they said that that there was a lot of letters being sent around town, like hundreds, possibly even thousands. So only 39 letters used against him. Throughout the trial, several key facts were presented that gave Paul Freshour a glimmer of hope. Under questioning concerning the writing of the letters, Sheriff Radcliffe admitted that they had asked Paul to copy the letters and told him exactly how they wanted him to write, which is a peculiar way to obtain a sample of handwriting. The sheriff said, I showed him block forms, how or what we wanted him to write. Jeez, so here, copy this, and now you're guilty. Sheriff Radcliffe also confirmed that no items, materials, or tools that were used in the construction of the booby trap attached to the sign were found at his house, nor in his garage. Neither did they find any ammunition for the gun that was found inside of the booby trap. Further, there were witness reports of a man hanging around the roadside, right next to the position of the booby trap just 20 minutes before Mary made her discovery. The man was said to be standing next to a yellow Chevrolet El Camino. This is a car that Fresh Hour did not own, and the description of the man did not match his appearance. Fresh Hour also supplied an alibi for the entire day that the booby trap was found by Mary Gillespie. Despite these facts building a relatively strong defense, at the end of the very public proceedings, Paul Freshour was found guilty of attempted murder and sentenced to 7 to 25 years in prison. With Paul now behind bars, Circleville could breathe easily, or so many thought. Any hope was quickly dashed when the letters seemed to continue, only it wasn't just the residents of Circleville that began receiving mail from this mysterious writer. Paul Freshour was serving his time in the Lima Correctional Institution. He was in Lima, Peru. Can you believe they sent him that far away? 
Now, he was about 100 miles northwest of Columbus, Ohio, when he received a letter that reflected the style of the earliest letters that had plagued Circleville for so long. The bold block capitals remained, taunting Paul from the page. Prior to his incarceration, many in Circleville had believed that he was guilty of penning the letters. Indeed, the sheriff and the local media had been making no bones about pinning the guilt of the Circleville writer on Fresh Hour. That first letter, however, was simply the first of many that he would go on to receive during his time spent in prison, all of which taunted Paul in his current situation. This is just a small portion of a letter that Paul Freshour received while in prison. And now, another dramatic reading. Now, when are you going to believe that you are not getting out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? No one wants you out. No one. The joke is on you. <laughs> the Circleville letters continued to find their way to mailboxes of residents throughout Circleville. Some assumed that Fresh Hour was smuggling them out of prison and the sheriff, in his attempts to alleviate the local fears, hastily had Paul placed into solitary. Oh, he threw this guy in the hole. Threw him in solitary confinement. Still, the letters came. What? That doesn't make sense. One local paper reported on the letters being sent while Paul was incarcerated. They placed a number of letters in the hundreds. Throughout, Sheriff Radcliffe maintained that the police had done their duty, despite evidence mounting to the contrary. I think we got the right man, he said. I know what Fresh Hour wants. He's trying to say, look, I'm in prison, but the letters have never stopped. This was a bold attempt to soothe the fears around Circleville, Ohio, especially as no method or theory as to how the letters might be coming out of prison was offered. A spokesman for the Pickaway State Prison stated publicly that it would be almost impossible to smuggle letters from the prison. They keep a real close eye on him and his visitors. I don't see any way humanly possible for him to sneak something out, she said. Despite the headaches the letters were causing Sheriff Radcliffe, they were bolstering Fresh Hour's likelihood of an early release. In 1988, he applied for parole, but his appeal was denied. In an act of desperation, he submitted himself voluntarily for three separate polygraph tests, all of which he passed. Though after his next appeal in 1993, he once again was denied early parole. Finally, in 1994, after ten and a half years behind bars, he had many statements from prison wardens that cast strong doubt on his ability to send the letters from his position in jail. And his appeal was finally granted and he was released. So he spent ten and a half years in jail for the Circleville letters and the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. And throughout all of this, still, the letters continued. After his incarceration ended, Paul Freshour put together a 176-page essay in which he documents his side of the events. He talked about the press coverage, the trial transcripts, and various official documentation maintaining his own innocence in both the letter writing and the formation of the booby trap. Much of his document also focused on several conspiracy theories that attached a mountain of corruption being carried out by those at the top of law enforcement in Circleville. 
The level of corruption that Fresh Hour accuses the local law enforcement ran incredibly deep and essentially boiled down to his arrest, trial, and incarceration, having been carried out as a way to further the careers of the powers that be and to show the sheriff was a local hero for solving the case, despite the fact that the letters carried on while he was in prison. Fresh Hour even accuses the sheriff of propagating the rumors that it was Fresh Hour writing the letters from jail before his trial. These accusations maintain that the covered-up information was intentional to stop the truth from coming out on a grand scale. So, that's been a lot of information. Let's take a step back. We need uh, some possible clarification on the case. Isn't there anybody that could just, you know, look at the facts, separate facts from fiction? Is there anybody who could do that for us? Seems like somebody should be able to step in here, aside from the sheriff, you know, like an arbitrator or something. Well, enter journalist and private investigator Martin Yant. Yant investigated the Circleville Letters case in 1993 for an article he was writing for the Columbus Alive. I guess that's some sort of magazine or something. He pieced together communication from a user from the Unsolved Mysteries online message board. Ah, oh, by the way, just I gotta stop here. The new Unsolved Mysteries just came out on Netflix not long ago. I mean, this may be dated now when you listen, but oh, it's really good, and it keeps the same theme, but like they updated it. Oh, so good! I love that freaking Unsolved Mysteries theme song. Anyway, so uh, Yant tells an interesting tale of two parts with two quite different letter writers. So he thinks it was two different people. Interesting. Let's let's see what Mr. Yant is talking about. In the first, Yant claims that the original letter writer was a man by the name of David Longbury. We haven't heard of this guy. Now, he worked at a local school and had something of an infatuation for Mary Gillespie. However, after she rebuffed his advances, Yant theorizes that Longberry embarked on a rather epic journey of writing thousands of letters over many years in a jealous rage, justifying to himself as a way to get back at Mary. The second half of Yant's conclusions concern Fresh Hour and his divorce from his ex-wife, Ron Gillespie's sister, Karen Sorek, in 1983. In the months prior to his arrest for the attempted murder, Paul Freshour was waiting through a rather messy divorce. Again, this is from Karen. Things were not looking good for Karen, who had been caught by Paul having an affair. She had lost everything in the divorce settlement, including her home and the custody of their two children. After their divorce, she moved into a trailer on Mary Gillespie's land, and during her time there, she told Mary that Paul was the Circleville writer. Hmm. Mary promptly relayed this accusation to Sheriff Radcliffe, and less than two weeks later, Paul was arrested. Whoa! So was she trying to frame him? She was pissed off about their divorce. She moved back in with her brother, who was Ron Gillespie, and, you know, living there with Mary. And she was pissed off and started to spread some rumors and lies trying to get Paul Freshour in trouble. Hmm, suspicious. Suspicious, unless he really is the writer. 
After his incarceration, Karen received everything that she had lost from the settlement. (laughs) The house, custody of the children, and even Paul's pension. Wow, if this lady was lying, she's a real bitch. She took his pension. Come on now. Writing to the parole board in 1993 in support of Fresh Hour's release from prison, Yant wrote of Karen, In my 22 years as a journalist and investigator, I don't think I have ever met an individual so consumed with such a rational hatred for another person and a willingness to say anything, no matter how provably false, to defame Paul Freshour. That's a pretty that's a pretty serious statement to make, I believe. I do believe it was a serious statement to say. He then goes on to drop the heavy bombshell that related back to the mysterious Chevrolet El Camino from Fresh Hour's trial. Yant says, As I related in Columbus Alive, this report placed a man unlike Paul Fresh Hour in appearance at the scene of the alleged crime shortly before it occurred. Although I didn't say in the article, the color and model of the vehicle the man appeared to be driving matched the description of one owned by a brother of Karen Sue Sorek. <gasps> so the man and the car matched her brother. Well, well, well. Before we attempt to make any sort of conclusions, perhaps we are in need of a recap. Here we have the story of an anonymous letter writer who, amongst other things, was hell-bent on outing an affair between Mary Gillespie, a school bus driver, and Gordon Massey, the school superintendent. There was at least one unsolved death of Mary's husband, Ron Gillespie. There was a bitter divorce that heavily implied the framing of Paul Freshour, landing him in prison for over ten years. Claims of deep and winding corruption entrenched the Pickaway County legal system. And throughout it all, over twenty years of disturbing letters that totaled into the thousands. If we accept Yant's story of events and run with the two-writer theory, we can answer the mystery of the Circleville writer. However, with his suspect, David Longbury, there is a motive for Mary and Ron's letters. But what of the hundreds and possibly thousands of letters written to other residents? While it's true that many of the letters seem to concern the school system, What motive would he have had to accuse, threaten, and harass so many various people, most of which had zero to do with him? Whether or not the claims made by Paul Freshour regarding his corruption were true or not remains unsolved. He clearly went to some degree of effort to write the lengthy document and surely had a degree of confidence in his claims. As he sent it to the FBI requesting that they take investigative action, He also maintained a website that hosted much of the documentation right up to his death in 2012. For the sake of a conclusion, we can set this aside for now, that without an official investigation, it is highly likely none of the truths behind these claims will be known, whether they support Paul's story or not. We are still left with pondering the motives of many. What exactly was the relationship between Mary and Sheriff Radcliffe? And what of the mystery of Ron's death? Why did the sheriff so readily change his mind from foul play to accidental? What of the alcohol found in his system, despite his family arguing against him being drunk at the time he left the house? And what of that mysterious bullet that was fired from his gun? 
The Circleville letters are a mystery that runs incredibly deep with twists and turns at every possible corner. Was David Longbury really the original writer? In the late 1990s, Longbury went on a run after raping an 11-year-old girl and was found having hung himself several years later. During the time he was on the run, there were rumors that the letters continued. In fact, there have been sporadic reports of letters being received right up until 2003. The sheer span and time and volume of the letters is mind-bending in itself. Over 15 years with no letters reported, it seems as though the plague of the Circleville letters may have finally been put to rest. I don't know about you, I've seen shows about this, I've listened to other podcasts about this, and it's a great topic, man, it's such a great mystery, it's such a great whodunit. I'm not entirely sure who did it, I'm gonna have to go out on a limb here, I really think the fact that Karen Freshour goes getting divorced from Paul Freshour, the guy who went to jail for this, she was getting divorced from him she would have known where his gun was right because it was missing she could have tried to scratch out the serial numbers and she could have had her brother or her boyfriend i I read somewhere too that there was a boyfriend involved her boyfriend or her brother whatever set up this device to try to shoot mary and that would then obviously implicate paul freshour and have him go to jail or at least have his credibility ruined and then she could start winning back the custody of the kids and all that stuff. She took his pension. She took his pension, bro. Whoa, what's going on upstairs? Do you hear that? Jesus Christ. Like a gorilla upstairs, people. Trying to record a podcast. Unprofessional. Uh, but anyway. And yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, sounds to me like Karen was probably involved. I don't know how she was not investigated further. Just keep questioning this woman until she cracks. Uh, you know, but maybe maybe they did that. I could be wrong. Maybe Paul Freshour really pulled one over us all, and and he was actually the Circleville writer, or at least one of them. There could have been two. Could have started with that Longbury dude, and after they came to Paul Freshour, he was like, "Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna take this shit over." And he started. I don't know. It is interesting to note that they originally, Mary Gillespie, Ron Gillespie, Paul Freshour, and his wife Karen originally believed that the letters might be coming from Gordon Massey's son, William, because it was the, a couple of the early letters were uh, with the signature of W. I find it a bit suspicious that Paul wrote the letters back to him, said he wrote three or four letters. I don't know why, I just find it a bit ironic that if Paul Freshour was indeed the Circleville writer that he offered, or they chose him to write the letters to uh, William Massey. That just seems a bit ironic to me. Don't you think? It was all too ironic. Yes, I really do think. I don't know. It is quite a mystery. Uh, it seems to be over. Like, you know, no Circleville letters have come up recently. But it was apparently one of the most famous... Oh, wait a minute. We didn't even get into the El Sicos part. How did we forget this? Guys, I totally forgot like a huge part. A classic part. Alright, so so I don't know how I didn't get into this. I was going to say, this is one of the most famous episodes of the original Unsolved Mysteries. I 
Obviously, I gave a plug there for the new Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. But the original Unsolved Mysteries show did a whole segment about the Circleville uh, writer letters. And as they were doing their investigation and starting to, you know, obviously get stuff prepped and ready for filming, the Circleville writer somehow found out about this. And he wrote an anonymous letter to Unsolved Mysteries. I can't believe I forgot to mention this. This is so awesome. So this guy not only terrorizes this town, but once he finds out about Unsolved Mysteries, he gets pissed. So he writes them a letter, and there is also a dramatic reading of this letter to Unsolved Mysteries. Forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. <laughs> Is that one not awesome? You El Sickos will pay. What made whoever whoever wrote that decide to write you El Sickos? Like, what? What was going through their mind to choose those words? They could have wrote like, you dickheads will pay or something like that. Nope. They chose to go with a very, very interesting selection with El Sickos, which is not something you hear very often. What a strange choice, though. I know that. I love that. I love he writes a letter to the actual TV, the TV show. It's great. All right, guys. Well, um, you know, you can send me an email at philinterrupted at gmail.com if you have any ideas. Was it Paul Freshour? Was it not? Did, was he framed? Did he go to jail? Ten and a half years for something he didn't do? Or was he kind of involved? I don't know. I'm not quite sure. Was it like a, like a white lie, a half-truth? Was he partially to blame? I don't know. I really don't. You guys be the judge. Send me an email if you'd like about that. I don't know. I hope you guys enjoy it. I, I do love the mysterious factor of shows like this. The trying to figure it out. Like playing a game of Clue or something, you know? Anyway, guys, I do hope you enjoyed the episode. We're making moves here on Phil Interrupted, and we will catch you next time. Peace out! Final little side note here. You know what else just occurred to me that I hadn't thought of? What if it was Mary Gillespie? I mean, she's the one who was having this affair, right, with Massey. So if she was doing that, maybe she wanted her husband out of the picture, right? Because she ended up getting together with that guy. So maybe she was the one sending the letters, starting to drive her husband nuts. He got super pissed. And I believe he was home with the children when he got the phone call. Mary, Maybe Mary Gillespie is the one that secretly made him it was the phone call and he came running out to get her and you know crashed his car because she tricked him somehow i don't know i'm just spitballing here but i hadn't considered the mary gillespie being a part of this i think about this karen who is paul fresh hours former wife right so she wants to get rid of paul she could have worked in cahoots with mary to get rid of ron gillespie and it's all making sense now what was going on it was all in cahoots I don't know. Just another possibility in this strange, strange mystery. And you know, another thing, Ron Gillespie, right? He crashes his car. Here's another theory. Maybe he was just really upset and depressed that his wife was cheating on him. Maybe he didn't realize it. The first few letters didn't believe it. 
and then came to uh, accept the fact. Maybe he got a call from Mary telling him that she was going to leave him or something, and he went out to maybe go kill himself with his gun, or he decided to crash his car, you know? Um, lots of different theories that could have happened there. Maybe that's why the sheriff looked the other way. Maybe the sheriff was in cahoots with Mary. I don't know. I don't know. All right, guys, that's it. I can't talk about this anymore. You guys figure it out and let me know, all right? All right. Here is a clip I found on the internet from the news back in the day. And I'll tell you what, it sums up everything I just said in like four minutes. Much faster and compact. All right, guys, enjoy. Driving around Circleville today would be much like driving around Round Town in the late 1970s. Nothing changes much. In fact, the population continues to go down. There would be one major change, though. Back then, there were the letters. The Circleville letters. And a lot of it was uh, vindictive in tone. I mean, nasty in tone. Uh, there was sexually oriented material or accusations uh, of Vulgar is the only way, you know, to really describe them. The letters were often threatening missives sent to people in Pickaway County. We're not talking about a couple or hundreds, but thousands of letters. They all had the same block lettering, and they would target politicians and leaders, but also just plain folks who had nothing to do with the running of Circleville at all. William Harsha is a 4th District State Judge who was a prosecutor during some of the time of the letters. He received his share. Harsha says the main suspect of the letters was Paul Freshour, who lived in Grove City. Freshour was later convicted of booby-trapping a mailbox belonging to an ex-sister-in-law. That sister-in-law was a school bus driver who the letters would claim was having an affair with a school official. In fact, the sister-in-law, the bus driver, had a husband who died under somewhat mysterious circumstances. Freshour was convicted of attempted murder in the failed booby trap, which included a gun that belonged to him, but he claimed had been lost stolen. All of the he said, she said, they said of the 1970s and 80s gossip mill got mixed into Fresh Hour's trial, and it was generally believed he was the writer. We were unable to reach him for this story, but we're told would be unwilling to do an interview with us. After his conviction, something else happened. While in prison, the letters, in what looked like the same handwriting, continued. Department of Corrections put Paul Freshour in isolation, they restricted his access to writing materials, they checked his mail, uh, and they insisted that there was no way he was sending these letters, but they continued. That's part of the story no one has an answer to. It went on after Mr. Freshour is in prison, and the focus of the uh, concern was, well, if he's doing this, how could he be getting letters out of prison? How, how could he be responsible? in a secure facility, and this happened. The sheriff of Pickaway County, Dwight Radcliffe, is convinced Fresh Hour was the man and guilty of both the attempted murder, of which he was convicted, and of being the letter writer, that he was somehow getting them out of the prison. Martin Yant, a former dispatch writer and now a private investigator, has spent a lot of time on this case and feels much differently. It doesn't seem to fit the profile of the writer, the writer seemed to be very involved in Pickaway County politics. Paul Freshour wasn't even from Pickaway County. He's a real gentle, soft-spoken guy. I think he was framed. Yant also received his share of letters in one the writer says about Paul Freshour, who was at that time in prison. See what he got? He will not get out of prison, or Radcliffe, meaning Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, will take his place. The writer also says... The signs and letters will not stop. 
Whatever happened, the letters continued off and on with less frequency into the 1990s. Then, like it never happened, the letters stopped, and Circleville carried on like nothing had ever happened. In Circleville, I'm Mike Bowersock, NBC4. Don't tell me what I can't do!